You are listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Hey, y'all, and welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie, and I want to talk a little bit about the Certified Wellness Coaching Program, and I have a special guest that's going to be with us here today to help talk about it, who is a contributing author and a researcher. But that introduction commercial that you heard about the NASM Certified Wellness Coach, that's what I want to talk about today. And we've had Darlene Marshall on the program who talked about it as well. Early on, we had Rich Fami on and we talked about it a little bit. But I want to have these contributors that have done research to actually have a discussion about what's going on in wellness coaching. And we had a conversation again. What is wellness coaching versus personal training? And a lot of times that's really about the prescription of personal training. This is what we're doing today. These are the exercises. These are our physical goals. There are distinct numbers and reps and weight and, uh, and, and different variables of training that we're trying to hit. But a wellness coach you know, looks at it from a different perspective. And it's not just about uh, it's not about exercise. It's definitely about physical activity, but and that can include exercise. That can include the workouts that you do, or it can not include any of that, but just be physical activity. But it also discusses sleep and stress management and recovery and so many different things. And when it comes to movement, it's not just about a prescription because that's not the point of wellness coaching. Wellness coaching is about empowering people to find their motivation, to help them with motivation, to move them forward in small steps to accomplish things and build on those things so that they move towards a betterment of life through wellness, through physical activity, which is really what NASM is going to focus on. But there's so many components of wellness. And today we're going to be talking about stress and sleep and some, some interesting things that our muscles produce when muscles are activated that help with many other things in our life. So what we did is we tapped on the shoulder, one of the contributors to this, we've had her on the show before, Dr. Jamie Tartar. So it's great to have you with us, Jamie. Thanks, Rick. Thanks so much for having me back. It's always so much fun. I loved our first episode that we did together. And I've been looking for an excellent excuse, any excuse to have you back again. So it's Yay. so great to have you back. Great. Yeah. And I was glad in the beginning that you mentioned that this idea of physical activity versus exercise, because I think that that's something that people in my world struggle with. You know, I'm a neuroscientist, so I don't work with a lot of people who exercise a lot. And when we think about the role of exercise on health, I think people get panicked almost because they think exercise like, oh my gosh, I have to sign up for a 5k and I've got to start lifting weights every day and I've right. got to look super fit. And we're really talking about physical activity, just moving your body more. So I'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned that, especially when it, when we talk about wellness, we're really talking about just moving more, not necessarily running a 10k. <laughs> right. Well, and that goes before we even started this conversation, you talked about doing this podcast standing up. Yeah. And, and a lot of that, like, so standing up, the standing desk, the treadmill desk, all of those things really have come from a lot of the research on sedentary behaviors 
And the goal of, of like counteracting sedentary behaviors isn't necessarily sign up for a 5K or make sure you get your gym membership and you go and work out. But it's about sitting and lying down less mm -hmm. and standing up and moving more throughout the day. So you are taking part of this, <laughs> this the, the implementation of these things just during this podcast. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because I, I am not going to run a 5k. I, I <laughs> exercise only because I know that my brain needs it. <laughs> Although, oh. Like most people, I hate doing it, but I feel awesome afterwards. Just little things like this, just standing up sometimes can help. Just really at the end of the day, we're talking about when you have the opportunity to choose movement over not moving, you should always choose moving. Yeah. All right. So first, I'm going to go back to something that you said, exercise only because my brain needs it. We're going to talk about that first. But before we do that, um, introduce yourself to everyone. Tell everybody a little bit about yourself. And then we're going to go back to that one. Sure. So I, as you said, I'm, I'm Jamie Tartar. I am a neuroscience professor here at Nova Southeastern University in sunny South Florida. You can probably see my, wait, that's why my beautiful palm trees outside. Um, I also run a nonprofit organization <laughs> called the Society for Neurosports. So the goal of our nonprofit organization is to create kind of an academic space where people can have conversations like the ones we're having today and the ones we had before. We talk about sort of brain exercise relationships. Okay, now let's talk about some of those brain exercise relationships because you said I exercise only because my brain needs it and most people don't think about exercise in that regard. Most people remove the brain from the conversation of exercise. They do it for their heart. They do it for their lungs. They do it for their body, but they don't put the brain in that category. So talk us through a little bit about the brain. Yeah, and I mean, we could even include athletes in that conversation. You know, most of the time we think about any kind of training or physical activity is happening from the neck down, but it turns out that if you want to perform better and if you want to have a healthier brain, we really need to think about what's happening from the neck up. So we know at the, at the like, sort of the long story short is if you want to have a healthy brain, you have to have a moving body. These things go together. We know that when you move, again, we're not talking about running a 5K. <laughs> when you move a lot during the day, you get that, get your heart rate up a little bit. Um, you're maybe lifting up heavy things and putting them down again. There are some peripheral factors that are released. So from your bones, we release something called osteocalcin. Um, from your muscles, we have certain myokines that are released, like interleukin-6. These have very fancy names, just so you'll believe me. I'm telling you the fancy names. You don't have to remember <laughs> them. <laughs> There's something else called brain-derived neurotrophic factor and irisin and Essentially, all of these peripheral factors are released when you move and when you exercise. And what they do is they help your brain to be healthier, right? They help your brain to do something called neuroplasticity, right? So make have those neurons make connections a little bit better, keep those connections healthy, and really keep the brain healthy. And, and Rick, it's, it's really gotten to the point where we even think about exercise as a way of helping to stave off Alzheimer's, right? And that's not to say exercise is in any way a cure, but it's certainly something that can help you with through memory and memory processes later in life. So exercise is really just almost like a panacea for, for, yeah. for everything. Right. And I remember, so, and this comes up a lot, I'm sure for you, John Rady's book, where he talks about a spark, where he talks about mm -hmm. exercise in the brain, which is the first book I ever read on this topic. And he does talk about that. And he talks about the, the term dumb jock. And he was like, we should really switch that to smart jock because yeah. people that are exercising <laughs> on a regular basis actually do have all these other benefits for the brain. 
and that, you know, he talks about the pathologies. And one of my favorite things that he discusses is that if you need a medication for uh, something going on in your, your life, like you get one specific medication, he goes, now, exercise doesn't mean that you may never need medications. Medications are vitally important. But he was like, when you exercise, you get all these other medications, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. These quote medications that your body produces. So you don't just get the one that's good for your heart, or you don't just get the one that's good for anxiety. You get all of these benefits. So you get the benefit for anxiety. You get a benefit for stress. You get the benefit for the heart. You get the benefit for the brain. You get, you get the benefits for everything. So when you say a panacea, it, it really it, it produces so many good things for us. Exercise, uh, which is a questionable word, but using that term, <laughs> physical activity, movement. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be, you know, one of the things I talk to sort of some of my colleagues and friends about is where you know, if you have the opportunity to, to dance with your kids or park a little bit further away, take the series that that's an option for you things that could, could actually be fun. So all of these things, anytime you're getting your heart rate up, Anytime you're, anytime you're moving, you are um, introducing these, these sort of peripheral factors, and they're all going to benefit your brain for all those reasons that we talked about. And, and again, and you're exactly right, we even see benefits of exercise in sort of treatment of depression, tre you know, treatment that goes along with other forms of treatment, but it certainly seems to have a lot of helpful benefits for, just like you said, all kinds of you know, wellness concerns. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dr. Jamie Tartar, who is a professor at Nova Southeastern University in Florida, where she is enjoying wonderfully warm weather while I'm in New York <laughs> City in February. So uh, good for you. And she is a contributor to the Certified Wellness Coach Program. She talks about some of these very important factors when it comes to wellness coaching. And one of those things is not necessarily prescribing exercise. Actually, in fact, it's not prescribing exercise, but it's working with people on movement. One of those things that you brought up, um, things like take the stairs instead of the escalators, or maybe don't look for the closest parking spot. You can, mm -hmm. you can park a little bit farther away and get more movement in. Playing with children, yours preferably, but if you have the, <laughs> the freedom to do so with other people's kids, do that as well. Uh, I think sometimes, Jamie, that people don't don't do those things, not simply out of convenience, but they also think that the little things don't mean very much. That they don't think about, you know, just, well, it's just walking a little bit longer. And if that's all the extra that I do, it's not enough to help me lose 30 pounds. And that's not the point of what we're talking about here. Uh, because most likely if you, if, if you find a challenge where walking, uh, you know, from a further spot in a Walmart parking lot to get to the front door is something that you're not willing to do, then maybe all those other things that you're not willing to do, uh, that are difficult, that are challenging, whatever that is, that like, that's, you have to start somewhere. You have to build into it. And and once you can consistently do something, then you can move into something else. And I know your specialty is not behavior change, but there are behaviors that we need to look at and address when it comes to this. Are there certain things that you see throughout your research? I mean, do you have people that are like, that are part of your research studies that are like, I just can't do some of these things that you're asking me to do, the physical activity or whatever it is. What do you what do you see with with trying to get people to adjust behaviors? Well, I think it's probably what you see, and I think it's, it's it's I do it. We all do it. It's human nature that anytime we think about a behavior that we should do, 
So, you know, eating better, right? Sleeping better, being less stressed and, and certainly exercise, we tend to take, and a lot of people take this all or none mentality. Right. But if I'm going to start exercising and we start moving more, I've got to do lots of this as opposed to what what's one small thing, exactly what you said that I can do. Okay, well, for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to choose to park far away. And I don't think that comes naturally for us. We want to make all the changes. <laughs> and so just right. recognizing that sometimes when we make these healthy choices, there can be a dose response reaction within us where even one small change, we can get a small change in our physiology right back at us. Oh, so I, I think we, we need to be okay with small changes and not feel like we have to make these new year's resolution type changes. And I think we can, we can stick with those a little bit better, right? If I say, I'm going to take the stairs right. every day at work, that's something that's a really small change, but it could have a big impact on my health over time. Right. So I think people are uncomfortable right. or they don't want to make a little change. They want to make all the changes at once and then they, that that's tends right. to fail. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's part of the, the beauty of the coaching program mm -hmm. is working through the small changes, working through the things that you will do instead of doing. So we always, we, we can get these um, jolts of motivation. Mm -hmm. And I think about it for for people that are like, let's use smokers for an example. Smokers who decide, I'm never smoking again. I'm tired. I've, I've done this for X amount of years. And I've told myself for many years, I'm going to stop and I'm going to stop smoking. And they take their carton of cigarettes and they throw it away. They take their, their pack of cigarettes, they throw it away. And then like three, four days later, they were like, oh man, I wish I didn't throw it away. And they go back to the store and they, they buy more. Um, th that's, that's a, you know, m motivation comes in waves and that happens in fitness. So same story with fitness, right? I'm going to get a gym membership and I'm going to go work out and they go and they work out and they maybe get really quite sore because they think they have to do certain amount of exercises to start mm -hmm. off. And then that's not fun anymore. That's not even the idea of doing it is no longer exciting. And they start the motivation starts to wane. Mm -hmm. They decide that this is very, very challenging and there are no longer these boosts of motivation. And one of the things we look at is just trying to do things that are so low level intensity wise that you don't need a lot of motivation to do it. Yeah, exactly. Right, And that's why taking the stairs or maybe parking a little bit farther, there are low level motivations. It's not that much harder, but it starts to change behaviors. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're looking at. Not necessarily like, I'm not trying to lose all this weight or whatever those goals are that say, here's my motivation to start with fitness. It's saying, here's the little changes that I can do where I don't need the motivation to go yeah. through that. Yeah, and, and and I think even taking, and it's something that we do in our society is sort of separating exercise from weight. Because like we said earlier, mm -hmm. exercise and physical activity is absolutely essential for your health. And I think we should be able to separate that from weight loss. Like certainly exercise is something you could do to increase your energy expenditure throughout the day. But independently of that, we can kind of dissociate any fitness goals that we have as far as weight loss, maybe focus more on nutrition, but think about physical activity as something that we do for our overall health. Love Not it. so much, I'm going to work out for an hour so I can have a slice of pizza. <laughs> like we need to right. think, oh, I'm, I'm moving my body because this is what my body needs to be healthy. And I'm moving my yeah. body because my brain demands it. I mean, we can even argue that as neuroscientists, we 
have evidence to suggest that the only reason we even have brains is because we move. Like if you look at all the organisms in the world, the only organisms that have brains are organisms that move. <laughs> so you can't untie movement from having a brain. So these two things regress on each other. Oh, that's a very, very good point. Yeah, one one researcher who talks about like a sea squirt, and you know, sea squirt spends his whole life on the bottom of the ocean floor, and he moves around, and at some point, sea squirt doesn't need to move anymore, and so at that point, it consumes its own brain, because if there's no need to interact with the environment and there's no need to move, there's no no reason to have a brain. <laughs> so fascinating. I think I read something about that story in um, Exercised by Daniel Lieberman. Now, I don't know if he's the researcher that did it because he's an anthropologist, uh, but he talks about it. So by far, one of the best books that I've ever read on physical activity. And, and so I suggest that to you, if you've not read it, and to anybody else. He's an uh, anthropologist based out of Harvard who's done a lot of research on society and movement. And it's just, it's such a brilliant book. Um, and, and I think it drives home the idea that exercise is a made-up construct, mm -hmm. but movement is not. Exactly. And you don't, you don't see hunter-gatherer population, you know, jogging on a treadmill <laughs> for right, 40 right. minutes <laughs> so they can go eat pizza later. Like that just that's really right. not the natural state of humans, right? You're you're literally just spending a lot of time walking. You know, I argue with one of my friends who's an evolutionary biologist because he says, you know, the natural state of humans is to, is to to run, I'm like, no, I feel like it's just to walk quickly. I get so mad because I hate running, but I can walk fast for a long period of time, like any good hunter-gatherer. Nice. Yes, I agree. And that's good physical activity. Uh, let's talk about the opposite of physical activity, because I know you know this topic, which is sleep. That yeah. takes us away from physical activity, the farthest that we can go from it. What? Talk to us about the benefits of sleep. There's a lot of research that's come out uh, lately about sleep and sleep science. So, so enlighten yeah. us. Yeah. And I'm so happy because finally sleep is cool. I've been trying to sell sleep for 20 years and nobody cared, but recently <laughs> sleep is suddenly very cool. So I'm cool now, which is awesome. <laughs> so, you know, so even if you are moving and you're doing some physical activity and you want to be better, at anything you know you want to be better at intellectual performance or sport performance we know sleeping is the easiest way to make that happen that once we increase people's sleep and people's sleep health everything uh, everything improves and i know another sleep researcher matt walker he likes to say that sleep is a swiss army knife of health and i couldn't agree more with any one statement pretty much anything that's wrong with you if you don't sleep it's going to make it a little bit worse and anything you want to improve if you sleep better it's going to make it a little bit better so one of the absolute best things we can do for our health is to sleep better. And earlier we were talking about the role of exercise um, in memory and the role of exercise and kind of staving off some of these neurodegenerative issues that we get later in life. All kind of, I mean, a flood of research coming out showing that sleep actually plays a very important role in keeping our brains healthy in, especially in older age, that when we sleep, it's really that time that your brain has to take out the trash. It's the only time that your brain is quiet, right? It's 3% of your body, 20% of your energy expenditure, and it never really has a chance to kind of clean out the metabolic waste that it builds up during the day. And the best time that your brain can do this is when it's doing nothing else. Right? So when it's in this deep coma-like stage of sleep, very, very deep, slow wave sleep, your brain has an opportunity then to just take out all that metabolic waste. And if you don't get enough deep sleep, that's one of the, the, the 
huge consequences of not sleeping enough is you do build up these metabolic waste products, which can lead to absolutely horrendous um, outcomes. Uh, can, can I ask, if, is there a reciprocal relationship between sleep and um, physical activity? Like, does increased physical activity help sleep? Does increased sleep help physical activity? Yep. If you, so if you exercise during the day, some of these peripheral factors that are released will actually not necessarily help you sleep longer, but they can help mm -hmm. you sleep better, get better quality sleep. And then if you get really great quality sleep, you will perform better. So there's lots of research to suggest, um, direct research, that when we give people what's called sleep extension, so you take athletes and you extend their sleep, even though it says sleep extension, we really are just getting them up to eight hours. <laughs> like as much as people oh, right. sleeping. So you give them sleep extension and their performance increases. I mean, this has been seen across sporting um, events, you know, tennis, basketball, swimming, performance just goes up once people start sleeping better. Uh, with performance also, do you, what about injury? Uh, if, if people who are sleeping less, are they more prone to physical injuries and yep. something like that? Yep. I mean, you're just more prone to accidents. So um, the, the fewer hours that you sleep at night, it makes mm. you more prone to accidents. And there's been some research on TBIs in particular with um, reduced sleeping hours. Because what one of the things that happens when you're not sleeping enough is if we think about your brain and all of those amazing things that, you, <laughs> that your brain does, your brain spends a lot of time trying to pay attention. And, and it's not particularly good at this. And it can't do it for very long. And we don't tend to do it very well. <laughs> so when you don't sleep enough, that's usually the first thing that goes is your attentional abilities. And you tend to get attention lapses a little bit more often. And it's probably these attentional lapses that make us a little bit more prone to injury. And to the, to the extent that we can even think of sort of daytime sleepiness as moments when you're when you're driving and you may feel like you bobbed for an apple or two, you know, one of these things. <laughs> we, we really need to think about it as really a red alert. Um, because at that yeah. moment, you know, sleep is such a priority for your brain, it's going to do it without your permission, right? And those moments that you do kind of have that bob for apple, that's actually a, a micro sleep. And your brain really did just go to sleep for a second or two without your permission. And so Sleepiness during the day really is going to put us at huge risk for accidents. It's, it's, it's the single point of failure for so many accidents is sleepiness, daytime sleepiness. I, I think that's huge to point out. Daytime sleepiness, driving while sleepy, that's oh. been something that's been in the news a little bit lately. So that's important to point out. Let me also point out that, again, that we're talking to Dr. Jamie Tartar. And she's a professor at Nova Southeastern University in Florida. And she is a researcher. And we're talking to her today about some of the things that she talked about in the Certified Wellness Coach Program, which is going to be sleep. We're going to talk a little bit about stress. And then I have have a few more questions about some of those myokines that you brought up. Uh, but before we do that, Jamie, let me ask you about uh, disturbed sleep. So sleep disturbances, whether that's uh, apnea or snoring or things like that, are those some things mm -hmm. that could, uh, these disturbances can have an adverse effect on your wellness? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm glad you brought up apnea. So we don't think about sleep the way we think about other sort of hygiene, right? Other forms of our health. Yeah. And you, you had brought up earlier people worrying about sort of their cardiovascular health. But when we think about the deleterious effects of not sleeping enough and these absolutely horrific consequences that can come about, we really should start thinking about sleep the way we think about if we had chest pain, 
we would probably go to the doctor. <laughs> or if we right. couldn't walk because our foot was hurting, we would probably go to the doctor. And so if you're not sleeping and you're struggling to sleep, you're not sure why you have excessive daytime sleepiness, really, you need to think about this the way you would think my chest hurts. You need to go to the doctor and get an evaluation because sleep is so critical for all these other aspects of, of health and wellness. And the cool thing is that a lot of sleep disorders, a lot of things a doctor might find are treatable and could have absolutely amazing consequences for the better on that person's life. So sleep apnea is very prevalent, especially in men, especially in older men, especially in people who may have a little bit of weight and people who have sleep apnea during the night, you know, they're, they're sort of struggling for breath. They tend to snore, just like you, you said, but they tend to not know. It's usually the person who sleeps with them. That's right. <laughs> they, have, they have sleep apnea. And, and sadly, is when we talk about wellness, things that aren't normal, we treat as normal. So if you're at a there we go, if you're at this, a Super Bowl party, for example, or you're watching a big football game on a Sunday, nobody thinks much about having old Uncle Al in the recliner and he's maybe fallen asleep during the day several times. And then when Uncle Al sleeps, you maybe hear something like <laughs> So Uncle Al needs to go see a doctor <laughs> because what he just did was gas for breath. And so it's hypoxia. Your brain isn't getting oxygen and his brain woke him up so that he could get that oxygen wow. and all kinds of cognitive um, impairments associated with that. But the cool thing is super treatable, right? We have sleep apnea devices that you can get, wear them even one night and you see it like a restoration of a lot of these cognitive detriments that occur with sleep apnea which most people know is, is a CPAP machine. Um, so they just push positive airway pressure into your, it's not the sexiest thing to wear. Right. We'll <laughs> <laughs> be so much better off cognitively. You just got to make something interesting with it. You know, I've heard people that said they have sleep apnea and they got the CPAP machine. They felt like uh, an absolute new person. They didn't know that they could be that alive or energetic. Yeah, it's like or a lobster boiling water. It's almost, they didn't, really it happened so slow that didn't recognize all of the deleterious right. cognitive consequences and then they get the CPAP and it's like night and day. Yeah, fascinating. Fascinating. I want to go back to something that you said earlier which is you said sleep is a hygiene. Can you explain what that means because I've heard that mentioned before. Yeah, well it's just like other things. So if I think about my oral hygiene, I do basic mm -hmm. things <laughs> to keep my mouth healthy because I recognize that there's some terrible consequences of not doing that. So we think about oral hygiene. Um, we think about sort of taking a shower every day to keep our bodies um, clean. We think about sort of nutrition as sort of basic hygiene. You know, we stay clean, we stay healthy. We don't think about, in fact, we think about sleep in the opposite kind of way. We kind of brag about not sleeping. And we think that that's great for us. If we see our bosses like, oh, I'm only sleeping four hours a night, that's awesome. But it's not awesome. You're basically telling your boss <laughs> that you are cognitively impaired. Right. <laughs> and all these other consequences that come from not sleeping. We know that even if you control for the same amount of calories that a person eats, if they're not sleeping enough, they gain weight, which is a little counterintuitive because you would think, oh, they have more energy expenditure because they're awake more. But there's right. some basic metabolic changes that actually put you at risk for gaining weight without sleeping a lot. So there's so many downstream you know, hygiene consequences to not sleeping that we really want to think that this is part of our daily hygiene routine. Interesting. I love that. I love that. All right. So let me, let's, let's talk a little bit about stress. Certainly I would say sleep apnea would be a stressor for <laughs> sleep, but what other stresses exist and how does that interfere with our wellness overall? 
Yeah. So I think for us, like life is stressful. I mean, all of it, right? So we we kind of talked a little bit about hunter-gatherer populations, but we it's actually a good population to think about when we think about why do 30% of people have issues with mood disorders? Like why are mood disorders so prevalent? So many people have depression and so many people are struggling with anxiety. And it might make us think that there's something wrong with our brains. Like why? Why is this happening? But it makes perfect sense if you think about sort of the natural human condition and what we have evolved for. We've evolved for basically a society where there's not that many people we're interacting with. You know, some numbers look at it about 150 people, the number of people your brain can really deal with, right? That's how many people you can socially evaluate, how many people can socially evaluate you. And then once you get above that number, it starts to be very stressful for your brain. We're, we're, a, we're a species that relies on other humans. So we're extremely social creatures, especially relative to non-human animals. And one of the things that humans are most sensitive to that kept us alive you know, for hundreds of thousands of years is social evaluation. Mm-hmm. So, your brain is, <clears throat> so your brain is really hardwired to be sensitive to social evaluation. Um, and now you're in a situation where you're being socially evaluated all the time, where you perceive you are by all of these people, some people on social media or people in your life, you're seeing hundreds of people every day. And so we're, we're not particularly good at dealing with the consequences of that. And then the other thing that we do well as humans is we, we ruminate on our on the things that are happening. So these day, what are really daily life hassles? We kind of ruminate them on them. We think about, oh, I've got to pay my bills. Oh, I've got a test coming up. Oh, my boss said this thing. Am I going to get fired? You know, we think about all of these things all the time. And what we don't realize is although they're just thoughts, they are actually, your brain is perceiving a threat, right? We're perceiving this as a threat. And once you're ruminating on something and your brain is thinking, ah, threat, 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 that's where those stress hormones are going to be released. So there's that pathway from your cortex to a really kind of funny area called the BNST, to your hypothalamus, and that sort of pathway of activity from thoughts all the way down to sort of pituitary is now going to start to release some of those hormones that cause things like cortisol and epinephrine to be released. And all we did to release cortisol was think. <laughs> we just thought negative things. Yeah. And that ultimately released all these stress hormones into our body. Right. So it really comes back to, for us, for modern humans, it's our thoughts that's doing us in, right? We're not getting attacked. Most of us aren't starving. Most of us are, you know, living per- what seemingly perfectly healthy lives. We have lots of food, too much food sometimes, but right. it's sort of death by rumination almost. Fascinating. Fascinating. So this is one of the reasons and, and some of the things that are talked about in the Certified Wellness Coach Program from NASM, where you discuss stress. But not only that, you work with individuals, you coach mm-hmm. individuals on how to talk through it. This is this is not psychotherapy. Nope. So if, if somebody is deeply ruminating about some things and they're staying on negative thoughts, they, they, they can use um, somebody more qualified than a wellness coach. But this is a coaching process for Mm -hmm. general populations that help people work through some of the stresses to move them towards better wellness. And so I think addressing these things, like again, sleep, there are people who work with sleep and there are sleep pathologies and that's not the job of a wellness coach. Mm -hmm. However, wellness coaches can work with people that need more sleep can talk about strategies in order to get more sleep, 
can be able to discuss the benefits of sleep and the science that's out there that's discussed through this course. So all of these things are valuable. And so I thank you again. This is Dr. Jamie Tartar, and she is one of the researchers that has, that has provided content for the NASM Certified Wellness Coach uh, program. So I, I want to continue with you just a little bit longer. I don't want to keep you too long. I want to respect your time. But we talked early on about myokines. And I want to ask a couple of things. One, is there a percentage of muscle activation intensity that one has to produce in order to facilitate the production of these myokines? Uh, well, first of all, what, what are myokines and how can they be beneficial? And yeah. then, then that question about intensity. Okay, cool. Well, I also want to add to you, like, I'm glad you brought that up, that in the mental and emotional well-being um, wellness training, we do get, because I think, I feel like we said a lot of bad things, <laughs> but I do want to point out that we we also offer a toolbox of things that a wellness coach can use to help their client work through a lot of these things. So that's, the toolbox is there to help you help your client, um, and then to help you find, help you with the resources you need to, to help the client. So my guys are really cool. And so um, osteocalcin, when we talked about, is actually released from your bones when you, when you exercise, which is pretty pretty funky. And I think to your, to your point, this is a quality of your research, because if you're, if you're out there and you're thinking, God, I would really like to spend the rest of my life doing something, this could be the research area for you, <laughs> because there is so <laughs> much that we don't know. Um, and part of the reason is, is a lot of research, especially for neuroscience, most research is done in non-human animals, specifically rats, because it turns out we can't like take out human brains. It's like, greatly frowned upon. <laughs> so, <laughs> so a lot of a lot of the times we're using animal models as sort of an index and a lens into what, be, what might be happening in humans. And so getting sort of that precise level of exercise, um, especially precise level of exercise for brain health, I think is largely unknown. And so what we talk about um, is exercise dosing, right? How much exercise do you need at a minimum? So I have a friend who doesn't like exercising and she's like, tell me the minimum amount that I need mm -hmm. to do to get these benefits, to get these myokines to be released. And so myokines, these are these proteins and neurological factors that are released from your muscles, right? So interleukin-6 is, is a big one because it's actually an immune factor um, and it can function, function sort of interesting pro and anti-inflammatory functions in that guy. But when you exercise, IL-6 activity seems to be beneficial right for your periphery and for your brain and and bdnf that other factor that protein factor we talked about as well so how much do you need and, and i think the answer is we don't know exactly um, but it looks you know looks like if you could get you know at least three you know maybe 45 minute bouts of aerobic activity during the week that might be enough to get sort of this this proper myokine activity okay all right yeah because I, I know there's the uh, people always want the answer. Yeah. So when people are like, what is the dose response? What do I need to do? And we're, it's hard to hear the words. It depends because. Yeah, it always depends. <laughs> because it always depends. Exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, can I ask you, the interleukin-6, I find to be fascinating. And you mentioned it, and I was going to ask you about it, that it's, it's like, it can be good for you and it can be bad for you. It can be very, it's one of the factors that show that you have a lot of inflammation going on, but it can also be something that, that helps and benefits your body as well outside of that. So like what, what's up with this 
this myokine here. Yeah, exactly. We don't. So, so it's it's, it's, it's also <laughs> <Yeah>. cytokine. <laughs> so I think with a lot of things in biology, you know, most most biological processes run on an inverted U, and it, and I think we just have a hard time with that because, like, when we do mm. anything, like when I have a headache, and I'm like, oh, well, two Tylenol is good. Like, twenty is probably better, right? Yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> we don't understand that. Sometimes there is that sort of sweet spot, right? That too little isn't good, and too too much isn't good. We want yeah. that sweet spot of activity, and, and you know, in lupin, it's it's the same thing. We don't want to low levels, but we don't want that sort of chronic inflammation either. Yeah. But I think that the story in interleukin-6 is, isn't finished because at least my own research, we did a study on gut microbiome and sleep. And sure enough, interleukin-6 was the one related to everything. Um, so I, I don't know. I know that if I'm going to do a study and I only had money for one peripheral factor, that would be the one because he always shows up in all my research studies, most of them as being a significant player. Interesting. Well, what about this uh, this irisin that you've mentioned? Because I know that there's there's a quite a bit in the the certified wellness coach program that talks about irisin. What are some of the one of the benef the benefits and blessings of irisin? <laughs> so sometimes um, this is actually referred to as the exercise hormone. Um, so irisin seems to have downstream effects of increasing brain BDNF. And so if you want to think about like, what is BDNF? Cause it sounds fancy. It's really just food for your brain. You're, it's what the brain wants, right? So right. <laughs> it just really ultimately helps your brain just be healthier. It keeps those neurons nourished, keeps them alive, keeps them functioning well. Interesting. So is, is irisin maybe one of the reasons why uh, exogenous BDNF doesn't work? Yeah, I think because all of these things don't really exist in in of, them, of themselves, are always part part of a cascade of events. Even like with gut microbiome, we know that if we, we can give you the, the specific bacterial species, but there seems to be something about the milieu that it that it actually lives in that makes a difference, not necessarily the the hormone or the bacteria itself. Uh, I am so fascinated by this. Uh, what are what are some of your favorite things that you experienced while working on creating some of the material for as we start to close this out uh, for the certified wellness coach program that NASM has done? Well, for, first of all, it was awesome to work with NASM and and some of the people I worked with, like with well, you and I worked with Rich Fami and Steve Myers and Jerry Dow and. They were just oh, so amazing people. to work with. And I loved that they were so obsessed with getting the science right. And we spent a lot of time just geeking out and talking about what the and they knew they are, I feel like everything I said they already knew. So we talked a lot about the state of the science and what sort of the latest research articles were all about and sort of picked, okay, these are the best things that a wellness coach could know. And then I was able to kind of put together a group that we re now refer to as the super friends. <laughs> so <laughs> really smart scientists and really working in their level of expertise and they got to take this information sort of to the people right so these are scientists um, and researchers that are working at different universities that um, wrote the chapters and the mental emotional well-being component um, of the wellness coaching and I, I think my favorite part was just working with this group and and you know reading their chapters and just seeing how much great information was was coming out of these people who are really working at the top of their fields this is what they do. This is their bread and butter. And then they were able to take that information and kind of put it, package it in a way that makes sense and package it in a way that a wellness coach could understand and could use really as that toolbox to work with their clients. So I, I wish I could do things like that. It, it was just really rewarding as a scientist to have yeah. had that experience. 
Oh, well, uh, unfortunately, I am not to your section in the Certified Wellness Coach program yet. Uh, I'm about 20% done. I know that because the, the course is fantastic and it kind of tracks and lets you know where you are and what you've accomplished and how much you have left. So I'm getting there weekend by weekend, a few <laughs> evenings, or if I have some cancellations in my day with clients, then I can get in and do a little bit of studying with the wellness mm -hmm. coaching program. So hopefully in the next two months or so, I'll be able to wrap it up completely. But it's been fantastic. And it's been amazing having you on again for you to talk to us and enlighten us about some of these things that we know are important and doing this course really enlightens us quite a bit more as to some of the work that you and your colleagues have done. So thank you so much for oh, everything. Yeah, thanks, Rick. It's always, always fun to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. And do you have, uh, if people had questions for you, want to reach out to you, do you, do, are you okay with relaying social content or sure. uh, email address, anything like that? Yeah, we're, so my, we're um, Instagram, we're at Society for Neuro, at Society for Neurosports. And that's where we actually put a lot of um, sort of infographics information about some of the things that we've been talking about. Um, and then my email is my last name at nova.edu. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much, okay. Dr. Thanks, Jamie Tartar. I appreciate you being here, y'all. Thanks for sticking around and listening. It's been really enjoyable. If you have questions for me, feel free to reach out on Instagram at dr.rickritchie, or you can email me at rick.ritchie, R-I-C-H-E-Y, at nasm.org. This has been the NASM CPT Podcast.